Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Rotten Eggs edition of Slate Money. You are in for a treat this week. Yes. Because, (laughs) oh my God, we have so much because we are going to talk about eggless mayo. I don't know. Honestly, that that story is completely bonkers. We are going to wonk out a little bit about productivity. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm here with Anna Shemansky and Jordan Weissman. Hello, Felix. You're and petty. last week, we announced, or I announced, that we weren't going to talk about Anthony Scaramucci. <laughs> and, then you- <laughs> and this, and this, like vow of you know taking the high road, managed to last exactly one week. <laughs> Um, we are going to talk about Anthony Scaramucci. Of course, we're going to talk about Anthony Scaramucci. But there is a business angle here. It's not just about auto fellatio. Um, the, uh, the, but it's partly. It's, partly it's, a, it's a little bit about auto fellatio, yeah. Um, but, the, um, but also, not only do we have all of the moochy goodness coming up, but if you hang out until the very end of this show we have another one of our ultra wonk bonus segments at the end which for those of you who've been listening to slate money for a while will know that the only thing i really care about in this life is um sovereign debt restructuring and argentina and argentina and we've got a call from a listener all about sovereign debt restructuring and Argentina. She's at Yale and she wants answers. And Anna Shemansky has answers because she knows <laughs> about up. this stuff. So we are going to wonk the fuck out about, um, you know, vulture funds and that kind of stuff. So that is a treat for the ultra wonks among you. Um, but yeah, no, we can't really talk anymore without mentioning the mooch. The mooch. 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 All right. So the mooch has been offered, I think this is the best way to put it, he has been offered the job of White House Communications Director. Um, Right now, technically, he's in this kind of limbo. Right now, technically, Sean Spicer is still employed by the White House and still works at the White House, although I don't think he's been seen there. No, he's he's deep in the bushes. Yes. Um, (laughs) Right now, Anthony Scaramucci does not officially work at the White House, even though he's there every day. He's hanging out with the president all the time, and apparently he now has a White House telephone. It's kind of like the Trump sons who don't work there. They're just there all the time. And um, and of course, he is on every single news show you can mention and is phoning up 
as many journalists as he can think of, including Ryan Lizard of The New Yorker. Okay, I think we just have, before we get into the finance stuff, I, I just have to ask you, Felix, were you at all surprised, as someone who knows the mooch, who has dealt with the mooch, who has, has dueled with the mooch, was there anything in the Steve Bannon was trying to suck his own cock interview that you were surprised by in The New Yorker? The only thing that surprised me was the was was the mooch's seeming inability to go off the record for that bit see i think that was imper- i think that was on purpose i have a theory but we can talk about this another but, time but yeah that's that like, i feel like we have to make at least a vague colorable attempt to try and talk about that the business angle here is that the mooch is he likes to portray himself as a hedge fund manager he or as i like to say he plays one on tv Mm -hmm. um he's on tv a lot he's on cnbc a lot he always used to be and he would go on wearing his suits and ties and talk about the markets and which asset classes were going up and which asset classes were going down and all of this kind of stuff and everyone and he'd be like i'm from skybridge capital which sounds like a hedge fund he's not a hedge fund manager it's a fund of funds um, but he's not even managing the fund of funds. He has someone else to manage the fund right. of funds for him. He's the owner. He's not the owner. He, he's the majority owner of the fund of funds, and he's the kind of face of it. Did he ever have a role picking the funds in his fund of funds? Was there ever a point where he was actually the the fund? Yeah, the the fund selector. I don't know what so, your title is there. But. So the the people making the asset allocation decisions were never him. Okay, mm-hmm. but. I think he almost certainly did have a role in doing basically the only thing, the only value that fund of funds add yeah. is that they get you into funds which you wouldn't be able to get into yourself. So you want to right. invest because money you, yeah. with Stevie Cohen and you phone up Stevie Cohen and he's like, who the fuck are you? Go away. But if you invest in the fund of funds, then maybe they can invest in right, Because there's Cohen. normally, you can't get into a lot of these funds if you don't have a million or five million. I mean, those are the limits. So this is for... So one of the things that the Mooch almost certainly did do would be to schmooze the likes of Stevie Cohen yeah. and say, please let me invest in your fund. And then having things like the Salt Conference and whatnot probably mm-hmm. helped too because he was a known entity in the industry. Exactly. Right. So, so he had access to maybe slightly more of the like top tier funds than other funder funds do but you know i don't think it made Depends, that much yeah, of a difference yeah. um but yeah and for, for so that was like the the work bit but in terms of asset allocation like one of the th- the other thing that he said that skybridge did the main thing that he said that skybridge did beyond just getting you access to certain hedge funds yeah was like Market timing, basically. He w- he was like, we are going to invest in the hedge funds which are doing well right now. And then when they stop doing well, we're going to take our money out of those hedge funds and put them into other hedge funds which are going to start doing well. And, and that basically worked once, right? Like he made a bet on housing, essentially, if I recall correctly. No, well, okay, it worked really well in the three to five years before he bought Skybridge. <laughs> that was that was the high point of Skybridge's performance or, or outperformance. Mm-hmm. Um, went back when Skybridge was owned by Citigroup. Yeah. And then after the financial crisis, Citigroup was forced to divest a whole bunch of assets and he picked up Skybridge That's on right. the cheap right. and then took this extremely impressive performance history that he had bought and he could take no credit for and then went out and started selling it to 
mom-and-pop investors who had absolutely no business investing in hedge funds, let alone funds of hedge funds. Yeah. Right. Because not understanding the different strategies of, I mean, of the even one fund, let alone the multiple funds and why you would be moving between these funds at different times. So now the mooch is trying to sell off you know, Skybridge. He's trying to cash in. He's trying to take well, his profits, to. or has to, and he's trying to sell it to his company HNA. In well, China. okay, so, so so okay, so what's happening now? Yeah. You're absolutely right. Is that if he wants to go into the government, he's yeah. not allowed to own Skybridge. That would be a massive conflict. So he has to sell Skybridge. The problem is, Skybridge is, uh, I believe, the technical term is a shitty fucking company, <laughs> and no one wants to buy it. Yeah. So what what to do? Um, what he does, especially without the mooch, like Skybridge mm-hmm. has a pretty shitty c- fucking company with the mooch. The Skybridge without the mooch is is almost completely worthless and has already seen like $1.6 billion of outflows. Yeah. So um, why anyone would want to own it, it, no one knows. But there are these two mysterious entities which have stepped up and said that they're willing to buy it for way more than anyone would credibly yeah. pay for seven times EBITDA is right now what they're pricing it at that seven times earnings which will never again be, be replicated Skybridge is never ever going to get those kind of earnings ever again yeah and fund of funds never sell for seven times earnings anyway and so yeah it's kind of crazy so in any case the, it, it looks very much like someone is trying to suck up to the mooch by overpaying him for his company yeah and who are these people Funny, you should ask. That <laughs> was what I was going to ask. But um, so it's this kind of mysterious it's Chinese two firm. Oh, two. Okay, mysterious firms. Right. It's it's a mysterious Chinese firm called HNA, mm-hmm. and an even more mysterious Venezuelan firm called RON Transatlantic. Okay, and. No one really has a fucking clue who owns either of them. HNA is now going around saying it's majority owned by a pair Charity. of charities. Yeah, there was. They recently. I was reading. They recently made an effort to make it clearer who owned them, and right. f- kind of failed. Yes, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> because you had a few businessmen, and then one of the businessmen who had a larger stake now apparently appears to have no stake. So, and this is also part of the reason yeah. why Bamel said. They wouldn't lend to HNA. Yeah. Is because okay, so now we have to do some translation. Bamel is Bank of America. Yes, and it's not just Bank of America. Um, whenever a Chinese company or a foreign current company wants to buy an American company, it needs to get papered by this wonderful entity called the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, or yes. CFIUS, and. H&A has bought a bunch of American assets in the past, including the Waldorf Astoria. Quite a and, few. and it has spent a lot of money, and it did pay actual real cash for them. So it, had, it has some money from somewhere. No one knows where it comes from. Cheap debt. <laughs> cheap uh, credit. Cheap credit. But the, um, but the upshot of the whole thing is that CFIUS has started saying, um, excuse me, who are you, and why should you be buying American companies? And most recently, just a few days ago, they vetoed, basically, H&A's um, acquisition of just a minority stake in something called Golden Eagle, which is this yeah. um, like in-flight Wi-Fi company. So now, on the one hand, no one is going to make the case that there's a bunch of like valuable proprietary technology yeah. inside Skybridge or that it's a particularly systemically no important company. strategic interest in a fund of funds with a sketchy track record. But on the other hand, um, 
Treasury is notoriously understaffed. It's taking a very long time for the approvals to come through. And it's obviously a little bit weird now that Anthony Scaramucci, who is, you know, who's quacking like a communications doctor director and looking like a communications director and this all BFF with the president is now basically going to have to talk to Steve Nushin at the Treasury Secretary and say, like, you better make sure that this thing gets approved, otherwise I won't get this job. It's all very weird. And yeah. it's not entirely clear who can recuse themselves or mm-hmm. avoid a conflict here. So, I mean, do you... You were talking to me a little earlier about H&A and sort of the role it plays in China. But aside from the fact that there's just a Chinese company apparently trying to suck up to the White House, is there any reason why people should be concerned about this as a potential conflict of interest? Well, again, I am frankly like less concerned about the the fears that somehow like maybe this is owned by the Chinese government and then they're going to have a connection with the head of communications. I'm less concerned about that. I'm actually more concerned about this firm and a lot of the these other big acquiring firms like Angban and um, yeah. Fosan in terms of what these types of acquisitions represent as a threat to the Chinese economy and thus the global economy. I actually think that's one of the most interesting stories about HNA. I realize that's tangential to this particular story. But, but it's but- true. They, are, they, they do seem to have overpaid for a bunch of American assets. And if and when they mark those assets to some realistic Well, and the, mark, other, the other issue is that they've, they've taken on a tremendous amount of debt to do this. They become insolvent. Yeah, exactly. And then you have these these companies that are so enmeshed in so many parts of the Chinese economy right now and have become so huge that if they can't pay back their debt, what that could be create a tremendous amount of instability. Yeah. So this deal is bad for HNA. It's really skeevy looking for the Mooj. Yeah. Um, it hasn't been signed off by Treasury. And without this deal being done, his entire sort of existence in the White House is incredibly sort of tenuous and contingent and mm-hmm. weird. I mean, part of me thinks he, you know, he's talking about how he just wants to serve his country and the president, like, what if he just hangs on as a volunteer? <laughs> well, I mean, like, obviously he's not going to, you know, he doesn't care about his salary at the White House. He's not a, but he does need he's the money not a from super sale, wealthy right? man, but he doesn't have the kind of fuck you money that he's going to get if and when this sale closes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. More interestingly, if the sale is barred by Treasury, it's far from clear that there's an underbidder or that anyone yeah. wants Skybridge. I mean, he did say that he there were a- yeah he, he said, said there was an was auction a- and that there were actually bids that were higher. Yeah. And he no didn't one go believes with this- that. Yeah, yeah. I, I realize. Yeah. Like I mean, like the mooch lies. I mean, that's actually <laughs> his job. Yeah. So yeah, when he when he turns around and says, "Oh, I had higher bids from elsewhere," you're like, "No, you didn't." You know, I, like if you had a higher bid from someone who was much less shady than RON and HNA, you would certainly have taken this, that bid. This also raises a larger question about what if you have these slightly shady entities taking on Skybridge, that that could actually decrease the value of the company. Because if you're a high net worth individual and you're saying, who am I going to be giving my money to in terms of figuring out which funds that are going to be picking? Are you going to go to now a firm that's owned by people you have no idea who they are? Yeah. And, and much more importantly, for the people who invest for the yeah for the people who invest in Skybridge because it gives them access to the top tier hedge fund managers, well, guess what? The top tier hedge fund managers don't want HNA's money. They don't want investors who they don't know who they are, who are yeah. shadow, shadowy right. shell companies called Ron Transatlantic. And the top tier hedge funds are already 
turning around to head to Skybridge and saying, no, actually, we don't want your money anymore, which means that Skybridge is just going to get smaller and smaller and more and more irrelevant. Yeah. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So the story of Skybridge is that it started off as a amazingly productive firm which had great outperformance and then it got bought by um, Anthony Scaramucci and it kind of plodded along sort of somewhere below the market and now it's becoming owned by a bunch of shady foreigners and it's going to really underperform and basically over time it's becoming less and less productive. How's yes. that for a Next segue? segue. One hell of right a segue. In there. <laughs> Jesus. So, All Anna, right. let's talk about productivity. Yes. So, I mean, productivity has been in the air for a while now, and especially questions about why it productivity growth is so much lower than people would expect. And this, I'm blaming the mooch. <laughs> we should we should probably just say at the outset what productivity so actually this, is. And yeah. there are different, and also, frankly, in economics, there are many different types of productivity that you're discussing. But what they're specifically talking about here is labor productivity. So that yeah. is output per, per hour yeah. uh, of work. So, so, and if you're a hedge fund manager, that would basically be your your alpha that you generate, the kind of added value that well, you that's, generate. Well, that's a little... Yeah, well, and if you're and uh, yeah, that's your I guess your value add there per hour or whatnot. Yeah. And then if you're if you're a worker in a Ford factory, it's, it's how, how many much cars, cars you're making per hour, per day. exactly. Yeah. Right, and when you're talking because when you're talking about GDP growth, yeah, you're, you're factoring in the kind of the amount of capital you have, the amount of labor you have, and then how productive yeah. the uses of both of those. Yeah. And once you get to a certain level in the economy, the only way you can increase GDP growth is by increasing productivity. Yeah. And because- that is basically how the world became rich. Insofar yes. as that we now live in a rich world, it is because we are much more productive now than we used to be. And instead of scrabbling around in the ground trying to extract potatoes we are doing like much higher value work creating and, funds and, of funds and yes. doing <laughs> and creating wealth and and all of this wonderful stuff and the problem which everyone has been struggling with for a couple of decades now is that this productivity growth, which made the planet wealthy, seems to have disappeared, or, at least in the... It's or it's slowed. It's yeah. slowed. And, and I think what's interesting about the article from the Times that was released this week, which is our, our news hook here. We have a news hook. We well, do. And, and the Times news hook is a paper by the Roosevelt Institute. Yes, as well as an American um, Enterprise Institute paper, but especially the Roosevelt Institute, yeah. where they are arguing that we're thinking about this in the wrong way. That it's not that productivity growth is slow, thus GDP growth and wage growth are slow. It's that productivity growth is slow because GDP. Well, sort of. It's, sort of. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's demand driven. They're specifically yeah. talking about the fact that it's labor market. It's the labor market. That's the issue. This lack labor market. Yes, yeah. but 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 it's entirely based on demand. It's based on the idea that 
companies do not have to invest in capital. They do not have to invest in labor-saving devices because there's depressed demand because, and there's a slap yeah, the yeah, market. I mean, so, so, so they so, can meet yeah. that depressed demand yeah. without investing. So the intuition here is basically I, that wages are flat, as we know. They've basically been flat since the mid-'80s. And so businesses know how much labor costs, and they're like, okay, fine, that's my labor input, and I'll just pay my labor that much. If you have a world like you had in the 70s, where you had like massive wage inflation and, and labor was getting more and more expensive, then that out of necessity, you would be forced to try and find labor-saving devices and make yourself more productive because otherwise you yeah. couldn't afford the labor. Yes. Now yes. that you can afford the labor, you're kind of not forced into that inventiveness anymore. Yeah. And so there, there are a few reasons why it's important. It's actually just you're bringing up that history of the 70s. There's actually this big, um, the history of the 70s and when there was this horrible you know, bout of inflation, there's this mystery people have been trying to solve about productivity growth during the 80s. There was just this, or about uh, corporate investment during the 80s. There was this huge spike in corporate investment around 70s, 80s. No one has really ever solved why there was just this big boom of it. And so this actually kind of plays into that. This idea is like when labor costs are going up, you right. you know you you invest and try to essentially buy computers and robots mm-hmm. to replace your workers, um, and this actually gets into kind of a, a huge macroeconomic argument, and that's one of the reasons I think the Roosevelt guys are interested in it. Um, which, well, the Roosevelt guys are interested in it because they're arguing for keeping rates low. Yes. Well, yeah, and I know I like I know some of them, and I'm, we've been talking. I've I've talked to them before about these issues, and you know, it actually it. If you think that productivity growth just kind of comes out of nowhere, right? Like if it's just like we have we create inventions, we create the internet and that boosts productivity, you can't it doesn't re- it's sort of just this magic ingredient you can't really factor into your economic analysis, right? But if you think that essentially a really tight labor market, really low unemployment itself actually drives up productivity, um, that creates all sorts of interesting possibilities about how we frame the economy. And you can start to argue, well, actually, if we have spending policies, right, if we have like government spending policies that or or monetary policies that really, really tighten the labor market and get, make sure everyone has a job and wages are rising, we're actually also going to grow the economy faster. And there's there's this argument that actually Bernie Sanders kind of started during his campaign where somebody said that Bernie Sanders policies would set the economy growing about 5% per year. Um, and all the like econ nerds, myself included, said that is ridiculous. And this was one of the theories that was sort of built into that analysis. There's this old thing called Verdorn's Law. Um, that everyone was like, what the hell is that? And so now people are kind of revisiting this idea. It's like, well, can we actually make the economy grow faster if we just freaking, you know, put the labor market in a pressure cooker. No, I mean, would that it, do it? And Yellen has even discussed, like, she's like posited what would happen if we just allowed the economy to overheat? Would that actually enable us to meet our inflation targets? Yeah, it would, uh, would it help us meet our inflation targets and just be good for, you know, world wealth? And why should we be less inflation phobic? Is it, it raises the question is, is this 2% inflation target we have, which is really more of a ceiling, it's not even a symmetrical target, is that keeping us from becoming more pro- productive? Because it's keeping unemployment too high? Or is, is it keeping the labor market too slack? I mean, it raises all sorts of interesting possibilities about how- So, yeah, let me let me just jump in here and yeah. ask. Um, I have two mental models of sort of contemporary productivity. Yeah. One is a sort of German factory full of extraordinarily expensive robots where there's a relatively small number of humans who are producing incredibly valuable output. Yeah, that's a good model. And the second model is basically 
the one which Apple and Foxconn came up with for the iPhone, which is you get thousands and thousands of human beings on assembly lines to do like very shitty, boring work over and over again, a bit like, you know, in a, in a atmosphere which wouldn't have looked out of place in Henry Ford's time. Yeah. Um, and that has obviously been incredibly profitable for both Apple and Foxconn. Yeah. I mean, obviously, they have very different models of where the productivity comes from. Um, but the latter one would seem to employ more people. Yeah. And I do think this is an interesting example of where I feel like we have every every day you look at the newspaper, there's another article about the robots are taking our jobs. We will have no jobs. Yeah. And then this would suggest that, like, we need more robots. <laughs> that That is the counter argument. But yeah, I, I like I, the productivity. And this is the thing. Every time someone writes one of those futurist article, like futurist predictions about how the robots are coming, everyone says, where is it in the productivity figures? Um, as for your questions, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, squeezing a lot of work out of people is a, is a way is literally they are productive. It does employ more of them, but it's also, you know, a really awful quality of life. And it's each of those individual people is not super, each of those individual people is actually not super productive. You know, they are, the margin that each of those people is adding in value to the product is not a lot. Um, It's, Apple makes a profit in the end because they have cheap inputs, but you know, China's trying to move beyond that model of labor. That's actually not super high productivity for China. I mean, we we should mention just because we are meant to be talking about the business news of the week that yeah. Foxconn is now opening yes. a big factory in Wisconsin. Well, supposedly. Yeah, they've promised to. <laughs> and and, it's, and making making TVs and things Yeah, at, with an absolutely enormous subsidy from the state of like $30,000 per worker per year or something it's, like that. Yeah, it's like mm. it works out to like $516 I think per yeah. per resident of the state. Like someone was joking that was enough to buy everyone an iPhone. <laughs> but, but, but that's a fascinating move that like, you know, yeah. now the the big Chinese, you know, labor heavy manufacturing companies are moving to the United States and seeing that the model works here. Well, so the idea is that if Foxconn comes here, they're going to try and move in this more mechanized direction. I mean, right. a, a company making LCD screens in America is not going to have that that the rows Number upon of rows of, of low-paid workers. That's just because, A, our laws don't allow it. But we why make... would they not do that in China? What's the advantage well, the, of doing it in so, the United States? So this is, this is part of it, is that in China, Foxconn is talked for years now about actually moving in a more roboticized direction. Mm-hmm. They actually have, they've, I can't remember if they bought or started, uh, if Han Hai Precision has its, its robotics um, subsidiary, but they are very into the idea of mechanizing their labor force, partly because they don't like the idea of having to manage these thousands and thousands of peop- of human beings, essentially. Right. They don't like having to run dorms. And you also get to a point yeah. where, the, again, the diminishing like marginal productivity per input of labor it, again, like that's just by definition, once you yeah. get to a certain point, if you add more workers, you you have smaller and smaller increases in output. Yeah, so, but, but to, can I just repeat my question? Yeah. Which is, if they're doing this in China, why would they want to do it in the United States? Well, once you're heavily, me- I mean, first off, it's, it's partly a political thing. Foxconn does this around the world. They try to kind of curry favor by right. promising, over-promising. And they're, they've, they've done this in so many places now. People start to note that it is literally, I mean, they've promised to open so many factories, it's almost impossible for them to actually follow through on it. So that's why a lot of people are looking askance at this deal. Um, once you do move in that sort of mechanized direction, mm-hmm. once you kind of 
modernize your manufacturing, it matters less where you are, right? Because once you just have a bunch of robots doing most of the work, you and a few highly, relatively highly paid uh, technicians overseeing everything, it's a little less important whether those technicians are paid on a U.S. Uh, a Wisconsin salary scale or a uh, Shenzhen salary scale. Um, and so that's because you know each of those individual workers, each of those technicians is going to be really productive because he has all the robots supporting him. Right. And, 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 and I would also like to yeah. argue that this is not part of like China's overall plan. Like they're really trying to get like the entire supply chain onto China and also to move up the supply chain in China. This is like one specific example that I do think is probably more politically motivated. But, and and just to to finish it up, I think it's worth noting that the difference in salary between a technician in Shenzhen and a technician in Wisconsin is actually not as big as you think it is. Like Shenzhen salaries have come up quite a lot. Yeah. Wisconsin salaries, as we all know, have been flat for decades and they're converging pretty fast. Which is the result of productivity. In theory. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about eggs or the lack lack thereof. Yeah, so um, wacky startup drama of the week, right? In case in case the White House and healthcare weren't giving you enough, uh, you know, fun to read about. There's been this weird story going on at Hampton Creek, um, which you probably know as the company that makes vegan mayo, and that the like that Hellman's and like the egg board essentially tried to big put, egg, big egg, big mayo essentially tried to put out of business by saying that because their product contained no eggs, they were, uh, you know, marketing it falsely as mayo. Um, I, I, I have much sympathy with this argument because yeah. I'm pro egg. I mean, I'm pro Me egg too. And also because if you see just mayo, you do not think righteous mayo. Yeah, but that is what they, yeah, exactly. Their product is called. <laughs> you think it's just mayo. No, it's just as in like justice mayo. Um, like this is Wonder Woman's mayo. Yes. But so um so they've had a whole bunch of controversies recently, but uh the biggest the the the, ne- the newest story is that their whole board quit. Like the entire yep. the startup's whole damn board just left in this power struggle with, And not just the board, but like virtually all of all the, the executives. executives yeah. Yes. Well, they, and those okay. that weren't fired. Yeah, the executives all kept getting fired. This is part of why the board ended up leaving. Um, the board basically kept on looking at the CEO and saying you can't just fire every single executive. And he's like, okay, I won't. And then he would go ahead and fire every <laughs> yeah. single executive. So, with an yeah. so this is, okay. So it seems like the conflict within Hampton Creek, the from what I've read on Bloomberg and all the articles about it, is that this guy, Joshua Tetrick, has really big ambitions for his, his company, his, his vegan foods, you know, egg replacement company, which is he wants to be one of the first guys to market with lab-grown meat. Right. And there was this tension in the company. Should uh, we put more of our resources into, you know, our egg substitutes, which is what we're known for, our mayo? Or should we keep going down this moonshot path and try to introduce, you know, try to come up with a product that no one has managed to um, produce at scale yet? Um, And a lot of his executives are like, we should really focus on the eggs. And he Mm -hmm. was like, you're fired. (laughs) And so his board is like, hey, 
maybe you shouldn't just be firing people. Um, and then, unfortunately, the board didn't really have too much power over him because back in 2015, he managed this maneuver where he got them to sign documents basically saying he couldn't be fired and right. giving him a majority voting share. And they were pissed about that, but signed it anyway. So then after being told he couldn't fire anyone, he went and essentially had a but he went <laughs> this I, was amazing it, this is it's almost like one of those stories where a band like fires someone by having the drummer show up and then they find someone else is playing their drum set <laughs> yes. like it was that kind of cruelty yes. what we're about to get to so he had a bunch Magaluf, of people, something yeah. about Magaluf. yeah they are off in spain on a business mm-hmm. trip and they said he told these inve- these no, uh, not ex- just spain they were in like majorca yeah, yeah majorca no. that's right and he told them that they were going to meet some investor and they should get ready and should have a conference call and you know, you know, they show equipment, the video conferencing. So they arrive at this this room and they sit down and the video conference starts and there's no investor. And instead, it's just like a dude that he had hired to serve them. They're like, you know, they're severance. You are and I will take your laptop. Yeah. Uh, and tell them basically George Clooney from up in the air was there to greet them and tell them they're fired. And the board is sitting there being like they're dealing with like a dog that won't stop eating like the, like the roast beef. Like every time he's like stop eating all the food on the table and the dog's like, OK, I won't do it again. And then he just keeps going back like they like you can't keep firing people and they had this meeting and they freaked out and they tried to give him more money uh more capital on the condition that they they he kind of stepped back and gave over some of his power didn't work now the board's gone this company is losing money left burning money still four million dollars a month supposedly so i guess i'm looking at all this and thinking can a startup come back from that well and i also think this is more than just the board leaving because, you know, this guy's a difficult personality who keeps firing people. You also have a long history of this company essentially misrepresenting itself. Yes. It's pretending that it's a tech company when ultimately it's no different than if I were to start a company where I make vegan cookies. And then I try to pretend that, well, maybe I'm going to develop this product that's going to, you know, make cookies that make you live forever and that wouldn't that be great and okay people give me money but i can't actually do that and that's his thing and this all is, he is is yeah. a cooking company well it's, but well, so, so i think this is like a heavy science it's a, but, but but it's not heavy science that's the thing they when they actually talked to a lot of the scientists that were originally hired they said we were sitting around doing nothing this wasn't science they would actually have them do like fake experiments when the news people came oh interesting yeah like this and actually also the only product so far that they've had really which is this yellow pea substitute for eggs they didn't even develop it they had to outsource it to somebody else because they couldn't. Oh, I didn't realize that. I and then on top of it. that, they okay. um, the 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 one great innovation they did manage to come up with was taking all of the money from their VCs, um, walking into supermarkets and buying their <laughs> own thing. product. That was an- in order to like make it look that their sales were higher than they actually were. I, I wonder if that has something to do with why their gross margins are like <laughs> like they're losing oh, a do- two dollars for every one like they sell or really, something. Really, because if you actually looked at their numbers, there was one month where this really vague category they had about which you people were like, why is this so high in terms of one of their expenses, which was clearly accounting for this money they were spending buying samples, was more than their profits for that month. So th- this is interesting. So maybe it, I, I'm trying to now like build this narrative in my head. So what you actually have is an extremely um, uh, ambitious and hard to control CEO who likes to fire people who don't agree with him, uh, desperately wants to make his non-science company that he has sold as a science uh, company into a real innovator, into someone that's at a, a, a startup that's going to have one of those breakthrough moonshots that's going to change the world, even though really he's just you know coming up with products with a pea egg substitute that he got from somebody else. And no one thinks that he's at, they're actually capable of doing that. 
and there's a, there's a he fires ang- everyone who tells him no. There's right. a mooch angle here. Right? Oh, is there? Because like I wrote one of the reasons why the mooch doesn't like me is because I wrote an article once about him, which among other things accused him of of his attitude basically being fake it till you make it, and he was like a fake hedge fund manager long before he was a real hedge fund manager. Oh, yeah, and this is an unbelievably common attitude in Silicon Valley. And mm-hmm. we saw it with Theranos yes. most notably, but more generally with just about every single startup in Silicon Valley. They all claim to be crushing it and doing amazingly important and interesting and innovative, innovative things in order to get the capital that they need to maybe actually do something important and innovative down the road. And I feel like, you know, although... I'm not saying that Hampton Creek is the same as Theranos. I'm saying that like the deep attitude of what matters is the message more than the reality because it's only the message which is going to allow you to realize the reality is is just deeply ingrained. What's funny here to me is that the faking it aspect isn't like faking it to consumers, right? Like they had a, well there's some of that well, too. there's some, yeah. some mislabeling there, there's some mislabeling but still for the most part i think people who are into hampton creek especially after all the um press it got following mm-hmm. uh its duel with big mayo uh, with big egg is that people knew it was a vegan substitute like and it was they had a product that people liked mm-hmm. and were buying um they weren't necessarily doing great financially but they had a real thing they were selling that was not dishon inherently dishonest um the kind of faking it part was to investors, it seems like yeah. branding themselves in this sort of as a technology, exactly, company, because which is not... like it's the Juicero thing to some degree, right. except for kind of got like a cracked through a mirror dark. Exactly, because you're not getting a billion dollars for just a vegan food company. Yeah. But if you say, "Oh, I'm going to create like a meat substitute that's going to taste exactly like meat," well, okay, people get excited about. So that. I think I think the end game here is probably that. Unilever or Procter and Gamble or someone will wind up or Kraft will wind up buying just mayo and the you know one or two successful products that Hampton Creek has for you know a reasonable multi-million dollar sum yeah and then everything else just kind of goes away and he never gets his moonshot agreed and I, I was just my, my last point here just to like to say that from reading all about this I will say that the the vegan alpha bro may be the worst of all possible types. Uh, totally agreed. Like, I, 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 when I, in my two weeks of trying veganism, which I, I, dear listeners, don't do it. Like I, I stumbled upon a bunch of vegan workout sites where it was like how to get swole and be vegan. Yes. And yes, you are correct. Yes. <laughs> I say this as a vegetarian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like vegetarians, I, I can kind of get my brain around the vegetarians, but yeah. it's hard. You you don't you spend so much time thinking about what you are you can and can't right. eat, and, and it's also this combination yeah. of being a vegan and being this incredibly alpha male that it's it's not a good combination. So and and now I'm going to completely change the subject. Okay. <laughs> and because this is Slate Money, your guide to business and finance news of the week, I'm going to talk about baking. Okay. Um, I need to talk about this because it's just something which I'm into right now. It's a this bonus segment, called, I think. It's right a now. bonus yes. segment. It's called Torta de Santiago. I've made it like three times, and it's a very forgiving cake. And the wonderful thing about this cake, well, the most wonderful thing about this cake is that it's unbelievably delicious. Okay. Um, it's a good quality. I'm cake. really wondering where this yes, is going. <laughs> I've, many, I've many times suggested Slate Money become a food show on the side. <laughs> so I'm kind of. The, um, the second interesting thing about this cake, after like serving it to a bunch of people who are all like, oh my God, this is unbelievably delicious, is that it's actually a gluten free, dairy free cake. Whoa. It only has three ingredients. 
egg. But the third thing about this cake is that even if you find this amazing holy grail of a gluten-free, dairy-free, unbelievably delicious cake, it still has egg in it. Egg <laughs> is one of those three ingredients. Yes. That's and so is this your way of saying like so fuck, fuck Hampton vegans. Creek? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just like, yeah, like, go eggs, go big egg. <laughs> eggs, eggs are wonderful things. Eat lots of eggs. Soon Today's episode eggs, is brought to you by the egg eggs. board. <laughs> we have USDA great. funding here. If big now. egg wants to wants to sponsor slate money, I'm I'm yes, like we'll I'm take totally, those egg dollars. I, I'm totally into that because eggs are delicious. And if you want my torta de Santiago recipe, just email us on slatemoneyslate.com and I will send you. It's so easy. All you need is a blender and. Some almonds. To- okay. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> we haven't been sponsored yet, just to be clear, everybody. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's have a numbers round. All right. I'll go first. My number is 19%, which is how much Altria's stock fell Friday morning after uh, the FDA announced it was going to try and reduce the nicotine content in cigarettes to a non-addictive level. I feel like, like, you know... The Bloomberg presidency has actually happened, and no one noticed. It was so surreal seeing this news because a it was just out. It was out of nowhere, and then or felt out of nowhere. And I was like, "Is this this is the Trump administration? <laughs> what? I, Wait, I, what? I, I still haven't been able to like read up on what internal machinations, what kind of fuck up on the part of you know the Trump administration, like the higher ups, because I'm assuming this is not something that like came out of the White House by any means, or anyone the White House would have appointed, but." Somehow this good thing seems to have happened that like in the year 2017, the FDA has decided to um, stop cigarette companies from getting poor people addicted to cancer sticks. So I think what happened, and this is just my theory, I have no evidence for it whatsoever, is that in the past year or two, America as a whole and Republicans in general have become much more conscious of and sympathetic to the problem of addiction yeah um mostly because of opioids Mm -hmm. and it's like addiction isn't happening to other people and black people now it's happening to us and it's a big problem and we need to do something about it and once you think of addiction as a disease which needs to be treated rather than like some like i can be addicted to something if i want because that's freedom then it follows pretty naturally that you want to do something about nicotine addiction, which is the biggest um, and most harmful addiction in the country. I mean, it's it, it's hard to exaggerate how huge this would be if it really happens. Because, happens, yeah. like, you know, the, the big tragedy about smoking in America is that rich people stopped doing it and poor people did not. Right. And that just the, the decline in smoking rates among the wealthier was, was so much more dramatic than among, like, the lower 50, like, you know, lower earning 50% of the population. Um, and 
so much of our healthcare costs right. come from these long-term chronic conditions. If you, if you get if you end smoking addiction or, or nicotine addiction, you're you're probably going to bring down Medicaid costs. Mm-hmm. You're going to bring down Maybe Medicare that's the costs. Whole point. Maybe yeah. that's the whole point. But I mean, there are all sorts of not. You're going to improve mortality um, mm-hmm. rates. I mean, there are just so many knock-on effects. It turns out Bloomberg so, had a point. Yeah, and so like if if this really if nothing gets in the way here, if somehow the forces of big tobacco don't rally and stop this, uh, this is a, a it just strikes me as a, a great thing. But so we'll see. But it, it's really a glimmer of good news. You know, I have a much less happy <laughs> number. Uh, my number is fifty thousand. So, if I were to ask you which country sends the most asylum seekers to the United States, what do you think it is? Guatemala. Uh, El Salvador? No. It's Venezuela. Oh, okay. Okay. And I'm specifically bringing this up because tomorrow, technically, there's supposed to be this constituent assembly to basically create a new constitution where the Maduro administration could then, in theory, just get rid of everyone in the National Assembly, take over power even more than they already have. This is a big deal, and it's incredibly negative for the country moving forward. Yeah. For Venezuela. Yes. Yeah. Keep an eye on Venezuela. Um yeah, this this story is one we are definitely going to revisit. Um, I I'm not going to do my like incredibly depressing women on boards number because I feel like we've had enough depressing <laughs> stuff. I'm going to do the Facebook earnings. Oh, the, because, the cause the freak out. So um, here's my number, which is two billion. Okay, which is now the. Um, number of monthly users that Facebook has around, well, obviously around the world, because there's literally no country in the world which has 2 billion people in it. The only way you can get to 2 billion is by being around the world. 2 billion is insane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, given like the sort of basic level of sort of hand-eye coordinate, like you can't use Facebook if you're sort of under the age of five. You can't, you know, you need a basic <laughs> right. level of literacy. You need a phone. You know, you need like, the, I think it's, its penetration is almost universal at this point it's an, anyway it may it has two billion monthly users and here's here's one more like throw in number 3.9 billion dollars is how much it made in profit in just the second quarter Jesus. in just three months did, did you see that uh there are whispers that steve bannon wants to quote regulate it like a utility <laughs> not that this will come to pass but this is this is what's being reported <laughs> It's kind of like his 44% tax rate yeah, exactly. for the rich. Like other exactly. things but Steve Bannon has muttered about that we're having. It's an insanely profitable company. Yeah. It's making $4 billion a quarter on like nine-ish billion dollars of revenue. Jesus. Like it's it's just a license to print money, that, really that company. Is. Cheryl Sandberg. Okay, so I that is it for the main part of the show. Um, we, As I say, we will talk very geeky stuff about sovereign debt, which actually has a Venezuelan angle because um, for if, yeah, and just a hint of how geeky we're going to get here. I will mention that Lee Bukite and Mitu Gulati had a really fascinating paper about restructuring Venezuelan sovereign debt debt this week. So if you want to geek out on sovereign debt, you should read that. But um, if you don't want to listen to um, us geeking out about sovereign debt, that is it for us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. Email us on slate money at slate.com. 
And go listen to the political gab fest because even though we listen, we we talk every so often about mooches, um, the political gab fest, which is the original gab fest, the basically the the model which Slate Money copied many years ago, is 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 the OG gab fest. And so listen to Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, and David Plotz every week. Their show goes up Thursday afternoons. So many thanks to Dan Schrader. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Oh, Lord, I got eggs on my plate. I got them. Damn right, I got four walls. I live in here. Hell, I live in here. Now, this big Jew man out of town, he told me one day, he said, Hey, boy, you look at that house on the hill that cost $100,000. So, Sadie Blanchard. Yes, hi. Welcome hi, to. Hi, Anna. W- hi. Welcome to the. Um, extra special bonus edition of Slate Money, you are, um, yeah, you're going to be broadcast to thousands of people. No pressure. Exciting. <laughs> so explain explain um, who you are and why you want to talk to us. Yeah, so I am the fellow in private law at the Center for Private Law at Yale Law School, and I'm researching the role of courts in disputes between foreign sovereign states and their creditors. So just so, like Argentina versus Elliot, everybody's exactly. favorite court case, it was exactly. all decided by an octogenarian Grisset. crazy person called Grisset. <laughs> Grisset, yes. And so, and you're like, why is why is some random old guy at the Southern District of New York suddenly having all of this influence in international geopolitics? That's right. But my question is even maybe a little bit more esoteric than that, in that I actually view that one part of that case as an outlier. So that was a case, that was a decision, this Pari Passu ruling that people have heard about, that the, where the court really did have the power uh, to put a lot of pressure on Argentina, but that's usually not the case. So if you look at the more than 10 years that Elliot was suing Argentina before that decision. They chased Argentina all over the world for over a decade, and they got almost nothing. So why did they keep doing it is my question. This Pari Passu ruling, according to everyone I've talked to, was like a surprise. No one expected it. Yes, this is not normally the way that right. that, that but, clause but that, is yeah. And so the question is, yeah. like, putting Pari Passu to one side – why do vulture funds um, take sovereigns to court when it's so difficult to win? Is that the question? That's, exactly, that's the question. So, yeah. So the, the, sh- the, the short and simple answer, which I'm sure isn't really going to satisfy you, but it's probably a good place to start, is that a bond is just a contract. And contracts are legal documents. And if you want to collect under the terms of a legal document, the only real way you can do that is by using legal mechanisms, i.e. a court, to try and do that. And the weird, wonderful, unique thing about sovereign debt is that because there is no such thing as sovereign bankruptcy, um, you can just keep on going to courts and getting judgments and getting, you know, whatever you like, more or less in perpetuity, because there's no way that any of this debt can ever be discharged 
in ban- bankruptcy. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and I also think it's very important to remember that often when you're suing, you understand that you're not going to be able to reach the sovereign itself. But what you can do is essentially influence third parties, things like clearinghouses, trustees, and then that can have a significant impact on pressuring the sovereign and making it more likely that they'll pay. And that's exactly my theory. So I'm going to ask you a little bit more about that. When you say influence them, do you mean because the court does have sanctioning power over those third parties or also or instead because the court reveals information about the debtor that then causes those third parties not to want to transact with the No, no. It's more just the idea that you sometimes actually have entities that the courts would have like jurisdiction over. And then sometimes you also have entities that they don't like Euroclear, which is in Brussels. Mm -hmm. But what the courts will say is, okay, if you violate this, then we can go into the discussion about whether or not I have the power to make this decision. But first you have to violate it. And nobody wants to do that. It, It becomes a significant risk for all of these third parties so that nobody wants to process these payments. And so then that makes it it really restricts access to the capital markets. Also, yeah. if you, I think, I think what this comes into, I think it all basically falls under the general heading of the cost of default. Um, what the vulture fund wants is for it to be very expensive for the sovereign to be in default, and the which will give the sovereign the incentive that it needs to settle in some way, and the way you make it expensive for a sovereign to be in default is to basically make it really hard for that sovereign to just go about the day-to-day things that sovereigns do in the world. You don't need to actually win anything in the court, but if you can make it hard um, for that sovereign to just like do the kind of transactions that all countries do every day, then that's so much of a pain that eventually there's a good chance that the sovereign will come to the negotiating table and say, let's talk about, like, can I give you a state-owned enterprise or something, and we'll call it a deal. Can I ask a question here? Can I clarify? You're talking about how, for instance, going to court can eventually, you know, cut them off from the payment system. If they haven't won a judgment, how does, I guess, can you give me, like, a concrete example of how that works? Like, do you have to win a certain... it doesn't need to be that blatant okay it that which is the point that anna is making you don't need to like in the case of argentina we really did have like argentina was cut off from the payment Mm -hmm. system and there was this like very thermonuclear remedy that crusade came up with but what we're saying is that what the way that most sovereign negotiations work is kind of in the shadow of that threat okay and that there's a lot of little things which are not big like you are cut off from the entire payment system but you are cut off often from the capital markets. Often right. it's and much, much harder for you to borrow money on the bond markets if you're in default to a vulture fund. Ex- well, exactly. It's going to make it you know, very, very hard and very, very expensive if you're going to try to raise in foreign markets. And then that also then increases when you're raising debt in domestic markets. That's going to increase those rates. And then also, this is a very expensive process for the sovereigns in terms of all their legal fees. It also means that when they have to travel, they have to be concerned about assets being seized. So then that makes it complicated. Even trading can be complicated in terms of if they're trying to trade with the U.S. and then there's concerns that some of that money could be seized, this really can um, put a tremendous amount of pressure on the kind of things that every government just does as a matter of course, all suddenly need to be lawyered and you wind up paying tens of millions of dollars to Cleary Gottlieb and you 
and uh, just basically everything takes much more time and much more lawyers than it would otherwise take. And none of that is money which is going to the vulture fund. Um, and the vulture fund isn't winning in court, but it's still a cost to you and it's still an incentive for you to just settle this thing. Already. Right. Trench it's a, warfare. It's important of. to remember like when that, you know, the issue with Argentina and that, you know, that ship that was seized and like that ship was only worth like $20 million. Like they, they didn't really care about getting that ship. You're talking about they're, they're looking at a claim of over a billion dollars. This was just to mm-hmm. inconvenience the government. So I, right. I, I have. So, yeah. Oh, I was going to say I have another question for you guys just from the. I guess from the fund's perspective, I imagine some of this also has to be just like the potential payoff is so high compared to the cost of lawyers. Oh, yeah. I mean, if for, you're talking, it, it also, sorry. Oh, no, you, you, lawyers aren't, for a big fund, lawyers aren't that expensive. Well, I mean, no, I mean, even though obviously like these fees, I'm sure were, were quite high in, in the grand scheme of things, if you look at Elliot's ultimate return, I mean, it was like 400%. It was a huge return, partially because of the nature of the notes that the, the, the interest that accrued was also a lot. So there's a lot of reasons why this actually was ended up, you know, they did very well on this investment, despite paying legal fees that long. And so like the, the possibility of that, even if it's a small percentage chance of getting that kind of return, it still might be worth it if you do it enough times. Right, and, also- and, and, and the other thing which has to be mentioned in the Argentina case is just that the amounts of money were vastly bigger than we'd ever seen in these kind of cases before. That, you know, they had a case in Peru, you know, years earlier, which was just a a fraction of that size. And most vulture fund cases, you know, when you're talking about somewhere like the Congo or um, Nicaragua or, you know, Honduras, you know, are going to be just like single digit millions. And so it kind of, the reason why Elliot could, afford to litigate this so expensively for so long. One one of those reasons is just because there was so much debt out there that they could have a massive holding. And then the other thing which you always have to bear in mind is that the costs are asymmetrical. Um, that the government has to lawyer up every single transaction it does everywhere in the world. And that's really expensive. Whereas the vulture fund can just sit there sort of threatening in principle to maybe attack one of those um, uh, transactions. And so that doesn't actually cost anything. But you need to you need to show the willingness to take them to court once or twice. Otherwise, they won't be scared. Right. And also, if you depending on where you bought the debt, if then you were, you know, say you bought it at 20, 30 cents, and then you're then they're saying, well, if I take part in the exchange, I'm looking at a like a 70% haircut versus if I keep this going, even if I can not get entirely where I want, but still at least get a better return. You know, again, that's more incentive. You don't necessarily mm-hmm. anticipate you're going to be paid out at par. Yeah, and and you know, so I think I think a lot of people concentrate a little bit too much on the judgments. It's very very easy if you um, if you take a sovereign to court and the sovereign is in default. It's very easy to get a judgment against the sovereign, and right. it's like that that really and a buck fifty will get you on the subway. You know, like the judgment in and of itself. Is, is very rarely paid. You, well, what you don't see in court cases is, you know, a country defaults, the vulture takes the country to court, the court lays down a judgment saying, you owe this vulture creditor $10 million, and then the country goes, oh, okay, here's a check for $10 million. What right. you have is an outstanding judgment, but then armed with that judgment, then you can sort of threaten the debtor in 
any number of courts around the world. And I think it's also important to remember that this often becomes is part of just basic negotiation, that when a country just either is going to default on its debt or if a country knows that it's going to need to, again, like restructure its debt in some way, the idea is they'll make a first offer and then people will come back with counter offers. And, you'll, and it's not necessarily every time you expect to have these incredibly difficult legal cases for years and years. Part of it is just the idea that, OK, you'll start here, I'll go here and we'll probably come out somewhere in the middle. But if you are a fund and your job is you've invested your client's money, it behooves you to then try to get the best return for your client. Yeah. So this story you're telling is the litigation as a sanction story. It's the idea that having to go to court at all or having to lawyer up is itself imposing such a big cost on the state that it is it eventually is better off to settle with the creditors. And I don't question that that's part of what's going on. But there's something else going on, too. If you think about the Congo case, once the creditors had a judgment in hand, they got discovery all over the world, not only about the Congo's assets, but also about the assets of the leader. The president was found to be engaged in all kinds of corruption. Then the 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 hedge funds like leaked the information to Global Witness and caused a big scandal. So I think that's also a part that's been underappreciated of what they're doing. They did something similar in the Argentina case where they were following certain uh, suspicions of corruption going on in Argentina, and they used that to get discovery about straw companies in Nevada that were linked to and a business associate of the Kirchner administration. So there's this other aspect of finding out things about the people in power that they don't want it's, made public. It's really funny you should mention the Congo case because before they came, before they went to Global Witness, or at the same time as going to Witness Global Witness, they actually came to me with that um, information <laughs> <laughs> many years ago when I was writing for EuroMoney. And I wound up writing about the Congo case, and they were really upset with what I wound up writing in the end um, because. Did you frame it as blackmail. <laughs> well, no, because like I basically wasn't interested in the um, you know corrupt African dictator is corrupt story. I felt it was like I I kind of yawned a little bit at that one, <laughs> and uh, and what they were wanting me to write was basically. Um, you know, Elliot Associates is the crusader for truth and justice. And, you know, look at this evil, corrupt country, which is which they're, you know, which is the black hats and Elliot is the white hats. And what I wound up writing was basically, you know, I the thing they got most upset about in that article and caused them to stop talking to me for like two years was and I would never in a million years have expected it. But the thing they got most upset about was when I wrote that they were trying to make money. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I was like, you're a hedge fund. Your job is to make money. And they got super, super upset. And they would, they basically didn't quite come out and say, no, we're not trying to make, make money. But they said, no, no, what we're doing here is we're fighting um, corruption. And we're like, you know, we're like, and I was like, and they were actually bringing RICO cases. They were like, they were trying to bring cases under organized crime statutes to try and like extract money from like BNP Paribas. It was bonkers, that case. But, so, I mean, like, this kind of gets to um, kind of a, a bigger issue, I think, about the way companies look, companies and, and financiers tend to look at law um, versus the way lawyers look at law, which is, or a lot of lawyers and, and uh, legal scholars especially look at law, which is lawsuits aren't about 
winning or about getting or even having the right case or knowing that you have the right case or that you, you're going to prevail. It's just about having enough of an argument that you can lock everyone into court um, a lot of the time and that you can get to that point where essentially you are then duking it out and imposing these costs on the other side and grinding them down. I mean, it's very and also much it's, a it's, tool. It's, it's partly a tool of, for grinding people down. And that's the kind of Donald Trump yeah. um, sort of, uh, you know, approach to litigation. But it's also it gives you a uh, an arena. It gives you like four corners within which you can negotiate yeah. in the way that if you didn't have the background of a court case, it would actually be more difficult to get everyone in the room and talking to each other and trying to reach a mm-hmm. settlement. Exactly. So why is that true in a world of creditor committees and all these other frameworks. (laughs) There has never, ever, ever been a creditor committee that actually worked. I mean, sorry, there have been many creditor committees which have worked in the world of loans. Um, when you had a world which was dominant, when when you know what was known back in the day as LDC lending, you know lending to less developed countries, we called them back in the day, um, and you'd have like creditor committees, which would be a bunch of banks, and and you'd have Bill Rhodes from Citibank sitting as the chair of the committee, and they would sit, sit around the table, and these negotiations would drag on for a decade, and eventually, um, after a whole bunch of like kicking the can down the road, they would eventually come to some kind of agreement. Um, you know, that was basically how sovereign debt worked for decades was because it was a loan market rather than a bond market. And then the way that got resolved ultimately in the Brady plan was by turning all of the loans into bonds. And the reason they turned all the loans into bonds was precisely because everyone was sick of fucking creditor committees. And they were like, we, if we turn these all think, these all into bonds, we're never going to have to deal with a creditor committee ever again because bondholders are everywhere and they're fungible. And 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 that was largely right. People tried. I remember, I remember um, good old Michael Chamberlain at the uh, EMCA, the Emerging Market Creditors Association, desperately trying to put together a creditors committee for Ecuador, and it was just a complete nothing burger. F- Felix, can you explain a little bit of what exactly a creditor committee is? Because I'm, I'm thinking about those in terms of like bankruptcy cases almost, but like I, I think I'm I'm not, I, I, I think I'm actually lost here. So what so, exactly? So yeah, um, Anna, have you ever been on a creditor committee? No. <laughs> um, a creditor committee is, is basically just what it says on the tin. And we had one in Greece, which was, you know, had a tiny bit of influence perhaps. Okay. But basically it's just... Um, the problem with a bond default is that you have a very clear debtor who owes money, mm-hmm. but you have a very unclear creditor. It's not entirely clear who the debtor should be negotiating with if they want to negotiate, because it's just they sold all of these bonds into the world and they don't know who owns the bonds. Yeah. And so the way you try to solve that problem is by herding a bunch of cats and getting a bunch of creditors together in a committee and then you can negotiate with the committee. The problem is they all have different cost bases they have different oh, time horizons yeah, although loans I do think, I do probably think it's easier to figure out who like you knew who had the you know who made your loans that yeah. was obvious so it was like you had the contract and even and if so, they sold the loans you know who they sold them to so it was easy to find the cats and it was, now a, bonds, it was a finite number of cats it was never more than maybe like a dozen I creditors. see okay and so with bonds it's a totally different world where it's just you these have diffuse securities right. that are but, but I do think you know and again depending on how 
in the event of a default or, you know, you're going into a restructuring, your strategy is going to be very dependent on your position and your size. Or if you can, if you're smaller, if you can potentially align yourself with others so that you can create a blocking position. And then this also brings up the, the issue of like whether like the terms of the contract, if you if it has collective action clauses, right. if it doesn't have collective yeah. action clauses. But, and then, but then so that's the case in for what you might call strategic investors, you know, who have strategies. At the same time, you know, as we saw in Argentina, there's a bunch of just individual investors often in this debt. You know, there were thousands of Italians who had Argentine debt and they were not interested in like working out like sophisticated strategies. They just wanted their money back. Of course. And, and, in, and because when it comes to this type of, you get into the situation where a sovereign defaults, people have invested, as we were just saying, at many different points. So they could have invested at a point where they had no idea that this was going to happen, they, or they paid close to par. Or you could have people who will invest knowing that you're going to be going into a structuring. But the point is, you buy it with the idea that you think you can push through a more creditor-friendly ultimate arrangement. So what is it about going to court that allows it, that makes it easier to get all of these dispersed creditors you mentioned um, coordinated? Well, I mean, it it does have this kind of, what's the word, focusing effect. It kind of forces everyone to look at the same issues at the same time in the same place. I mean, I remember in the Argentina case, um, you know, suddenly like you had Gramercy and people like that hiring, who was it? Um, It was boys i think boys shiller it was yeah um you know like to to come out and start arguing their case because even though they weren't a party to the litigation you know if you own the debt and if there's a clear venue where the debt is being litigated and these issues are being litigated um that's where you go to work things out one of the um i mean the single most idiotic um tactical decision that i've seen in um, the history of sovereign debt defaults was when Ecuador decided to default on its debt um, in, I want to say, 1998. Um, they did so during the annual meetings of the International Monetary Fund in Washington, which was literally the only time of the year when all of the creditors were in the same place at the same time and <laughs> could get into a room together and all agree in that room that, yeah, they were going to accelerate the debt, which is what Ecuador didn't want them to do. If they'd done it at any other time of the year, just coordinating all of those creditors to make that decision would have been much, much harder. And what a lawsuit does is it has that kind of coordination effect. It just brings people to the same venue to talk about things. Hmm. Okay. Um, So, I find that a little bit unsatisfying because with the amount of money at stake and in a world of conference calls, <laughs> surely they could get together and figure it out if they think. Yeah, and, and I do think I, ultimately I, banding together is going to get. Yeah, yeah no. and ultimately this is why most defaults, most restructurings, you don't have these long we'll legal battles. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's true. You don't like you don't hear about the the crazy negotiations which happened in like Pakistan or Ukraine, you know, these things happen quietly or even so much in Uruguay, you know, you're right that with a bunch of goodwill and often you, what you find though, 
behind the scenes of those is a, is another venue. Like what you will often find, and Uruguay is a really good example of this, is that when you don't have a court case, when no one's taking the country to court, um, and you don't have an official creditors committee, what you actually have is the U.S. Treasury stepping in and doing that coordination role and quietly talking to all of the bondholders and quietly like acting as a liaison between the bondholders and the and the debtor country and trying to work things out. Um, and you know, and one of the things that um, Bukait and Gulati sort of hint at in in their paper about Venezuela is that. Venezuela's workout is going to be very, very difficult because everyone expected that when Venezuela defaulted, the U.S. Treasury would step in and play a major role in working it out. But now the U.S. Treasury is a, I believe the technical term is a clusterfuck, and it basically just doesn't have that institutional ability anymore. It, it seems to me like you're, you're saying there needs to be some sort of forcing mechanism. Here too, uh, what what right? I'm saying is that is that Sadie has yeah. this idea that in principle, with this much money at stake and um, everyone having like Bloomberg's and having each other's emails, and yeah. you know, they should be able to coordinate this shit like. Don't we have Slack these days? <laughs> and and the short answer to that is no. Like yeah. these people are unbelievably bad at well, coordinating. I, yeah. Although I will say, I, I mean, I think at the end of the day, ultimately, your your first instinct is always to not have to litigate this. Maybe you know, there, there's a potential of threatening litigation so that everybody can kind of essentially get in the same room. But unless part of your strategy is essentially you know that you're going to be able to litigate longer than others are you're that is not going to be your first um kind of the means you're going to want to use and, and i but think coordinating again coordinating litigation is complicated among many different oh that's impossible course. that almost never happens i mean what we but saw what we saw in argentina um most famously was um uh, what's her face Zimmerman like totally free riding on Elliot and and you know the person who made the highest returns on Argentina paid almost nothing in lawyers because she was like oh I'll just get Elliot to do all the litigating for me interesting I know there were some creditors after Elliot got its settlement that tried to come in and say me too and the court refused to hear their claim but um, I want to with the name of that one you're talking about is Zimmerman um, it's Andre Schleifer's oh, wife yeah. up in Boston. Okay. Anyway, um, but I mean, but thank you, thank you so much for calling us. It's been so much fun, like geeking out about sovereign debt. We love to do this. Thank you. I appreciate you taking the time. Cheers, Sadie. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye bye. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.